0: guest today is Chris Baum, the founding head of school of the Millennium School in San Francisco and the author of the just released Finding the Magic in Middle School. Chris, welcome to Off Trail Learning.
1: Blake, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I am super excited for your book. Uh, We're going to talk all about it. But first things first, where can people find this book, which is now out there in the world, ready to be purchased?
1: yes finally after a long gestation uh you know all the places it'll be on amazon uh, apple books you can request it from your local bookstore um, or uh, through my website uh, chrisbalm.com
0: awesome so uh before we get into the actual meat and potatoes of the book i'm curious about your background and your upbringing and and your education especially uh since it's most relevant like your experience in middle school so tell us how that all worked for you?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you my middle school experience if you tell me yours, Blake. Ah, uh, deal. Uh, <laughs> so mine, um, you know, I, I went to schools that were, I think um, people would say they were privileged in many ways, and I was privileged in many ways, and that it was a you know, suburban public school uh, in the Boston area. And at the same time, it was an experience of being really disconnected and bored. And I, I was pretty sure that's how everybody experienced it, and that that's how it had to be. And so, I when I finished my middle and high school, which I both of them would qualify that way, I went to college thinking I'll do anything except education because I'm done with that. And so, of course, here I am. <laughs> the rest is history. Your well turn. Done.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm going to dig in more to this, but I, I will respond. Uh, my middle school experience. Uh, was, was dramatic. It was a dramatic shift from, from sixth grade to seventh grade. I I did seventh and eighth junior high, a standalone junior high public school in, in Bakersfield, California. And, and the biggest difference I remember was coming from this seemingly kind of carefree and, and innocent sixth grade elementary school into this like vicious like pack of dogs experience uh in in seventh grade and and this first day that i stepped onto the the campus everyone was standing in circles and and i was like where's my circle which circle Mm. will i join i have and the feeling was this this anxious feeling of like i have to have a circle otherwise i'm just out here in the wilderness and, and the dogs will eat me alive um and and I ended up joining the the, the skaters, the skateboarders. Mm. Although I was never fully accepted, I was always a poser, uh, as the, the, the term we used in the '90s yeah. for, for skaters <laughs> who couldn't skate, but they they wore the clothing and they they talked the talk. Um, and uh, academically, I think similar to you, I, I was able to perform, but I was often frustrated and bored, and I, I sort of marveled at the inefficiencies of the classroom and how often teachers would be focused on things which were not teaching or, or engagement uh, of any meaningful kind. So, uh, survived, uh, went on to high school, had uh, somewhat better, but but also similar experience, and uh, uh yeah, I thought I wanted to be a scientist yeah. and then ended up in here in the world of alternative education. There we have it.
1: Yeah. That, I think that speaks so directly to the experience that most kids have, which is immense confusion, you know, in, in some ways at best, you know, trauma often, you know, at worst, but the sense of being thrown into a big institution where it's not clear what you're supposed to be doing exactly, and it's not clear who you are because of how much is changing within you. And the institution doesn't necessarily believe that it's meant to help you answer those questions. Hmm. It's still trying to kind of convey a whole bunch of static knowledge that Mm -hmm. most kids, it's not remotely their highest priority, Mm -hmm. and for good reason. So yeah, I'm right there with you.
0: Yeah, it was like the same pedagogical model as as elementary school but it's as if uh, the educators all sort of missed some important thing which was different here like like it, the the focus that we we gave as students in, in middle school was no longer kind of uh, kind of automatically de- deferential to adults and teachers it's like there was more of an us versus them. There was, you know, clearly, as, as the circles indicated to me, much more of a, what are my peers doing? You know, where do I fit into this? Like, that was the number one priority. It was just like social survival. And and all the school stuff was, it's like, oh, okay, you know, we're still doing this? You know, I guess I'll, I know how to play this game, so I'll continue playing it.
1: Exactly. And that, I mean, if we actually design middle school based on what's happening in middle schoolers' brains... You know, we would design it to be first and foremost about figuring out the social world and that's they're so primed for it neurologically and it's what they need to be happy and successful humans as adults um, so it it absolutely can't be you know brushed aside to get to the academics mm. um, they have to be put on the same path
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i i wish that my middle school had had known that of course there were great teachers there but as a whole um, i just don't think it saw that that was part of its job, you know, to help me figure out questions of identity or peer relationships or place. And as a result, I really didn't know why I was there. It just didn't really compute to me. I was kind of going through the motions.
0: Hmm. So continue your your journey for us. Like, how did you end up as an educator? Tell us about becoming a school founder and and just how your, your approach to education developed and became what it is today and and what is represented in finding the magic in middle school.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I showed up in college, uh, like I said, certain about one thing only, which was I won't do anything regarding education. And I I wandered off to become an aeronautical engineer Uh, that lasted for approximately one semester. And then I began kind of pinballing around different majors trying to figure out uh, what I wanted to do. And to make a very long story short, you know, at some point during college, I started to wonder, you know, did it have to be so bad? Uh, I'm sorry to be more specific, did middle and high school have to be so bad? Is that normal? Is it something about teenagers that they're just difficult and it's gonna be a slog? Or could it somehow be different? And around that time, uh, and I know you'll know this reference and probably your listeners will as well, it, I came across, uh, the Sudbury Valley schools and it was a swoon moment, <laughs> partly because I had grown up practically next to them and had never known they existed mm, and just rough. suddenly was, oh God, I just desperately wished I could go back in time and go to that school. I mean, you know, I, I think I've since come to a more balanced view and I've heard that, uh, in your comments too, that, you know, there are wonderful schools and they're not, you know, there's no utopia out there. Um, But man, I I would have loved uh, the amount of freedom that those schools at least aspire to. Mm -hmm. And when that became something that I knew could exist, I started to realize, I don't think that my education had to be so painful and confusing. And then I had been tinkering with doing something in business and being an entrepreneur, and I realized I don't really care that much about making money, uh, sometimes to a fault, but I I have this entrepreneurial energy, and I started to get excited about what, what if I could do something really different in education, and you know in a way it was it was a repair attempt, you know for my own path, uh, but it it also tapped into something that just continually gets me super fired up, which is wondering what is human potential like, what could we actually be like, if you know our context and our schools and the people around us knew how to support us and and knew how to offer the right degree of challenge mm-hmm. and freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. Like what if all so, those school mm-hmm. mission statements were actually real, like <laughs> exactly. they were actually accomplished? All this lofty exactly. language about making them you know, the, the best of, of human potential.
1: Right. Huh. Even 50% of that, if we could accomplish. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, and so what, what, yeah. what degree did you end up with? What did you end up doing as an undergrad?
1: So I ended up with two degrees. You know, This is a result of the tinkering and pinballing arounds, um, one in business and one in psychology. And then, then I went and became a middle school teacher, <laughs> naturally.
0: Where were you teaching? And, and so, where did you uh, go to university?
1: Yeah, I went to University of Pennsylvania okay. and um, had, a, had a wonderful experience there. It had the level of freedom, You know, I think like most universities that I had been yearning for for years. And became part of my question, which is, why do we wait this long to give people choice? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, was that really necessary? Whole other topic. Uh, But then there was a program that they ran uh, that placed uh, Penn grads or current Penn students in teaching positions uh, in the Philadelphia public schools. So I showed up there you know, clueless uh, kid from the suburbs of Boston showing up um, in a pretty impacted low-income neighborhood school in Philadelphia and had kind of, you know, my eyes opened in it in an intense way. You know, I thought that my schools were rough. Uh, I They were rough in a certain way, but this was a whole other level. You know, I, I showed up in schools that felt like prisons, and I, I hate to say it that directly, but that they they looked like it and the atmosphere inside often really felt like it.
0: Mm-hmm. And how long did you stick it out there? And, and what were your experiences like? Why weren't you driven away completely from education?
1: <laughs> you know, in a sense, I mean, this in the most positive way. It kind of radicalized me felt like, wow, there is, this needs so much energy and love and help to turn systems like this around. Um, uh, And, you know, that that was despite I I was matched with a mentor teacher who was incredible, who was just like a powerhouse teacher who emanated love and wisdom with firmness. Um, So it it wasn't that all parts of the system were broken by any stretch, um, but I saw how it was stopping adults from being as good as they could be and absolutely crushing the curiosity, you know, out of kids. Um, So. I came out of that. I just did that program for one year, uh, working in uh, middle school classrooms, and then I started a nonprofit that was all about apprenticeship. Because my my first idea was like, I, I'm showing up here with this the privilege of this network, where I know people who are doing all kinds of different jobs, all kinds of professions, and I know that my students here don't have access to a lot of those people. Could I be useful to them as a bridge, uh, since I'm you know? Barely able to figure out how to teach them anything, uh, but I do have this resource uh, of this network. And so, long story short, started a 10 year long adventure creating apprenticeships for middle school kids that was pretty wild and showed me that you, know, you can do something radically different from what the normal experience is. You know, we had kids who were learning to fly planes after school or going to you know work in the police department or code software or become accountants, you know every possible thing in between. Uh, that, that could be part of their normal life. It could be something that literally thousands of adults signed up to do. Uh, it's all resource that's there in the community, but there's no bridge kind of regularly built um, between these different segments. So that, uh, that was my first big adventure and took me all over the country, uh, building these apprenticeship programs.
0: And you, you started the nonprofit when you were what, 24,
1: uh, tw- 22,
0: I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wait, 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 you finished with a, a, a double major from, from Penn at what age 21, and then so. did a year of middle school teaching and then started a nonprofit.
1: Basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Some of the teaching was while I was finishing there. (laughs) It was a nutty time. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't know what I was doing in any of those domains and it was just wild tinkering and experimentation.
0: Okay. Okay. So you, you grew this nonprofit. What was that, that organization called?
1: Yeah, it's called Spark and happy to say it's still alive and well, uh, sparkprogram.org for people who are curious and Mm -hmm. running these programs uh, all over the U S.
0: Yeah. And wow, 10 years. I mean, that's a long time to develop your thoughts about education, especially if you are working in the trenches of the most classic form of experiential education, you know, apprenticeship. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you for putting it that way. That's how I feel about it, too. It is the most classic, you know, the oldest play in the book in education. And yet... We only use it in very specific domains normally, you know, around the trades in particular, where I think it's used quite well, but there's no reason to limit it to just a few percent of the population.
0: Okay, so where did you go from there?
1: Okay, so then through Spark, I had been to a ton of different middle schools all over every, every stripe um, with the consistent, you know, context of them being in low-income neighborhoods. Um, and I came to feel like we really need some different ideas about how to set middle schools up. Like it seems to me like these are set up for frustration, you know, simply put where they're not really taking into account what's going on developmentally for kids. So the kids are frustrated. The adults are set up to be frustrated. Parents feel confused and under supported and why are my kids changing this much? And as a whole, as a society, we just think middle school is the absolute pits in mean, there's no worse reputation, as far as I can tell, of any part of the education system. Mm-hmm. And my experience with middle schoolers is that they are some of the most extraordinary humans you'll ever meet because they're they're literally in transformation in front of your eyes. And the fact that our system doesn't know what to do with that is really the system's fault, not kids. I don't think middle schoolers are inherently a difficult age group, um, but they are. it's a very distinct age. So... Long story short, after all this experience seeing middle schools, I came to feel like we need to redesign how this works, and started a new quest that also took ten years <laughs> of uh, first going around and trying to figure out how how would you start fresh in designing middle school, and trying to work with people who were thinking more about neuroscience and psychology than you know how to improve standardized test scores. And what would it look like if you started fresh? And then, then we actually started that school in San Francisco, which became Millennium School and had a wild and crazy second adventure of how to how to bring this to life and all the compromises um, that are involved in beginning a school, but, but worthwhile ones.
0: And you got fabulously rich in the process. That <laughs> That's right. That's the great thing about being a teacher, right? Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. All the stock options are amazing for starting <laughs> nonprofits. Yeah, if only.
0: Well, you started a school in San Francisco during a very dynamic and you know upward moving period in, in the history of the Bay Area, and I know that competition can be pretty fierce for in the private school. In the innovative private school realm there, like so many different really cool sounding schools have, you know, come by my radar in the Bay Area. Um, Was it difficult to to start the school? Was it difficult to get funding to get parents on board? Or did you find that you had a really hungry and welcoming audience for this kind of thing?
1: You know, yes to all of the above. Um, It was insanely difficult and the project almost died at several intervals. Um, Mostly because of trying to get enough money and trying to find a facility, which for anyone who knows the Bay Area knows that real estate is close to impossible here. So that almost sunk things. But interestingly, what it it was not a problem finding parents, Um, not to say that it was easy, but with a good amount of outreach, we pretty quickly found families that kind of agreed with us basically saying, yeah, middle school seems like it's guaranteed to suck if we do the traditional route. Like, is there, can you convince me that there's a better way? And we felt like we could make a strong argument for that. Um, so obviously no, no school's right for everyone. It was a certain group of people, but who wanted something that was more, uh, more progressive, more kind of open in the sense that we see this as a laboratory and we're gonna invite your students to be experimenters with us. Now, we don't exactly know what the school is going to look like. Uh, we have some starting points, uh, but we do know that it's going to involve students having much more control, not to the level of a Sudbury Valley school, but somewhere in between, um, and where they're going to get to work on what most interests them. And I don't mean which academic subject most interests them, though that's also there, but their social lives and their emotional lives,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's front and center.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And, and we are going to talk about the the details of the Millennium School, which does form a lot of the, the backbone of, of what you discuss in the book also. But just to wrap up your narrative, you were with the Millennium School for 10 years and then and now you're not with the Millennium School. Does the Millennium School continue to, to run and, and exist? And, and what are you doing now?
1: Yeah. First of all, happy to say Millennium is thriving and uh, definitely continues to exist and I'm happy to still be closely connected. Um, and so now I am writing this book, uh, as you mentioned before, Finding the Magic in Middle School. Uh, that has been a huge joy and a massive project, um, working with people who are thinking about schools all over uh, in different ways. And then I just uh, joined a team in Japan to help start a new uh, international school there focused on uh, well being and environmental sustainability, and hoping that it too can be a model school of sorts.
0: You also have something called Argonaut. What's that?
1: Yes, that too. So many different projects. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thread from Millennium School, something we realized pretty quickly is that if you can do advisory well, and advisory meaning like a small group of students consistently meeting, um, they get to talk about life, you know, whatever might be coming up for them. And they actually can process those things like, I have a crush on someone, I don't know what to do about that, or I'm having this conflict, whatever it might be. Uh, When you get that down well, that becomes the heart of a great school. And it's something that I think every single person, not just talking about young people, deserves to have a group like this where you can be really honest and just make sense of life together versus trying to do it all on your own. Uh, And so long story short, when I left Millennium, and this was right as the pandemic was beginning, Felt like uh, I would love to offer this to other people. And so Argonaut is an advisory program that's online for any middle schooler in the world. And uh, we have kids from four continents so far, um, every walk of life, meeting up consistent groups of about 10, just to, you know, we we learn social and emotional tools. But first and foremost, it's about being there for each other through the ups and downs uh, that, you know, adolescence has no shortage of.
0: And as I've told you before, Chris, our, these advisory groups feel so similar to the uh, advisee groups that I run at Not Back to School Camp or the the daily meetings that we have on an unschool adventures trip, which has you know, roughly 10 or 12 young people and a couple adults. Um, and so I, I'm a huge fan of advisory and I'm so glad that it's like such uh, a prominent part of the book too. And I think if, if people take any... And there, there's so many concrete things to take away from the book but to take away just one thing i think advisory is is a top contender and and i really like what you just said about this being something that everyone can benefit from that like adults too and and maybe we just get this in more random and haphazard ways from from friend circles uh if we're lucky on a on a consistent basis but But to really have a group of people that you sit down with and you have serious check-ins with and you can be vulnerable and uh, maybe this is also what entrepreneurs do with with what they call mastermind groups, Mm. but that's more business oriented. I I just love the the idea that this is for everyone and it's, uh, uh, you know, you can't start too soon.
1: I couldn't agree more. I I really think it is the number one thing that you can do to improve schools and I'm so glad it came out to you when, when you looked at the book that mm-hmm. if you could build advisories for both students and for the adults in schools, and I mean, that would revolutionize things mm-hmm. if the advisories were done well.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's go down to the foundations of the Millennium School and also foundations of your book, uh, which often is is about developmental needs and developmental stages, and so, what is it that that changes in the middle school years that parents and educators and maybe society broadly speaking fails to recognize or to give credit to, and and then we we start to you know stigmatize and label middle schoolers as being difficult or unruly because we we fail to understand this.
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. There's so much there. I mean, I think the essence of it is that we don't appreciate how deep the change is. You know, we, you know, there's we see elementary schoolers. You know, as parents, we get accustomed to a certain way. Uh, the structure of traditional schools probably works better for elementary schoolers than anyone else. And it's almost like you know, you're you're driving a car, and then it transforms into an airplane. And if you don't radically change the way that you are trying to be in that vehicle, uh, something is going to crash. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us. You know, we're we're used to a certain way of parenting. We're used to a certain way of teaching. um, We're used to kids not being as distracted by the social world. You know, all of those things. And then middle school happens, and it is after early childhood. It's the biggest time of brain development in our lives. You know, we start as puberty begins. um, We start to completely remodel how our brains work, and in particular, um, we become intensely social creatures and not to say that younger kids are not social but it's different Um, when puberty starts you start to really be able to pick up how people are judging you and you notice inclusion and exclusion and groupings and you compare yourself and this kind of changes everything you know once you're aware of that you're constantly in this tension which is you know can I be me whoever that actually is Or do I need to copy someone else who seems to be getting some status or Mm -hmm. popularity Mm -hmm. or whatever?
0: Um, And so you're you're describing the like daily struggles of my seventh and eighth grade, you know, existence, like the the way you just said that, like it's, it's almost a black and white decision. It's like, can I just go with what seems right to me at this moment? Or do, do I copy and paste someone else's behavior onto myself? Just like really well said.
1: Thank you. And if if middle schools understood that, then you know, first of all, they would make time and space to socialize in different groups that are not always highly structured. Um, they would have these advisory groups that we've been talking about, so you can process your mistakes. Um, they would teach things like conflict resolution or managing emotions, or simply how to make friends or how to repair a friendship. Mm. You know, some of the most elemental things that make us happy people. Um, that somehow we just all take for granted you you pick that up along the way um, you don't necessarily or you don't when you need it uh, so these are some of the things you know as we were in that design process and launching millennium school we kind of came to feel like there are a handful of core developmental needs that middle schoolers have everything about the school should be designed to help them meet those needs and when you're helping them then you'll also see them be more motivated that they will feel like school is for them versus this machine that they're being processed by. Mm. Um, And, you know, in a nutshell, those three drives are the need for to figure out who you are, your authentic identity, uh, the need to figure out how to connect with people, how to belong among them, and then the need to contribute something and to feel valuable because you can contribute something.
0: Mm. Yes.
1: (laughs) So that's the, those are the ingredients for a good middle school, and you still can get to all of the academics. In fact, I think you can get to them much better. But you start off with those needs and design for that. You know that's why, for example, we started off with a week in the wilderness, where you're connecting as you go through different challenges with peers, and you come back and show up for your first class with friends and stories and outrageous legends that are forming from your wilderness adventure. You know. That's what we need, I think, always, but especially at this age where you're just waking up to the social world.
0: Hmm. So now I wanna I want to push back. I want to try to challenge you because at this point okay it, it could still feel like uh, like I'm at a TED talk and someone's telling me how to to revolutionize middle school and and I feel like you must have had this experience too, hearing lofty I- ideals and and desperately wanting to believe them and then looking at what actually happened on the ground and and it feeling shockingly conventional. So yeah. what, what was happening on the ground at Millennium School? And my favorite question to ask of, of any alternative school or program uh, first is what was absolutely required and what was truly optional? Mm, you mean from the students? Yeah, from the students' perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, there's so many stories to tell there. So yes, we, we entered with this kind of blue sky vision of what middle school could be. And then we ran right into reality of recognizing, you know, this is not going to be a free school in the sense that, you know, students have complete control, uh, as much as you can in a community over their path.
0: And, and, uh, and just tell me why, yeah. why did you run into that barrier immediately?
1: I think, you know, the, the simplest way to say it is that we wanted this to be more broadly useful and i know that sounds super demeaning toward free schools which i love um but we wanted this to be a school where a traditional middle school could say oh we can take steps in that direction like that's inspiring and i i think there's a role at every point in the spectrum you know like i said free schools in sudbury valley and democratic schools were what got me into education Mm -hmm. so there's a role for them representing kind of being a beacon Um, But your typical, you know, U.S. public middle school is not going to look at Sudbury Valley School and say, great, let's go there (laughs) like that. It's it's too far. Uh, And so I think you need schools in the middle, too. And that's that's what I felt would be the highest use for millennium school. Mm. This is going to look pretty different from a traditional school, but we want it to be familiar enough that as we start hosting educators, which became a big part of what we did, they could walk in and say, okay, that's a stretch, but it's not completely crazy to think we could get closer to this. So
0: Good that, that's why. Yeah. All right. So keep telling me about the, the student experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think honestly, our, our, probably our, our biggest symbol of compromise, and I say this with a lot of love to the educators involved in this story, um, is math. So I, I think in our country, for whatever reason, and maybe this is true elsewhere, uh, we have a really uh, intense set of assumptions around math, and seem to attribute to it like this uh, gatekeeper status. I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think the way we teach math makes it far less appealing than it would normally be. But it exists right now, it's it's in the water around us. So for example in our first year we attempted to you know have all of our academics happen through big interdisciplinary projects things like you know building a tiny house that could be a mass manufacturable model to help with the homelessness crisis or all man, you know running social experiments on each other to figure out how we generate happiness in a community and we came to the realization after the first year that it's just not working with math because of the relatively traditional mindsets that the schools around us, that the high schools we might send our kids to, and some of our own parents had about math. And so we had to take a step back and say, you know, we're going to teach math as a separate class. We didn't think we were going to do that. And we'll make it as good of a class as we possibly can. It it won't be lectures, um, but it does still look closer to a traditional math sequence. And we felt like this is our negotiation with the world you know, we get to do a lot of things with crazy amounts of freedom. um, And we also need to meet the world where it is right now, even if we don't agree with all that. Mm. So that that (laughs) that sounds like
0: the bargain that a lot of unschooling families uh, strike, parents strike with their kids, uh, where they say, we're, we're, you know, supportive of you being highly self-directed. And I need, you know, for our peace of mind, please follow this traditional math curriculum and, and make like normal milestones or, or some parents feel strongly about foreign language or, you know, insert pet subject here, but I think math is a pretty high contender. So that's an interesting parallel between the experience you had running millennium school and and what I've observed in uh, a lot of, uh, you know, eclectic homeschooling families.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, Blake, since you gave me permission early to take us off trail or ask some questions of you, i I always love asking people about these compromises. I feel like this is where the rubber meets the road. You know, if you were starting a school that was not a full free school or unschool, what compromises would you be willing to make?
0: Like, what would I be willing to make required, even if I didn't feel totally comfortable with it? Yeah. Yeah. I I think uh, if there is an argument that's rooted in in science that is easier for me to justify to myself and for Mm -hmm. me to to justify to other people i think that foreign language has a uh you know this might not even be an issue relevant to school because so much effective foreign language learning happens when kids are really young kind of you know pre-school years Mm -hmm. Um, but that could be one that's one example of where there's a narrow time window that i think can be very well justified to say, this is the time to go learn a foreign language right now. And so if I was going to require anything, I require something like that. Um, mm. you know, with, with math, uh, I don't know. I think we'd have to have a whole podcast episode just on that, <laughs> on that subject Yes, uh, alone, Chris, but certainly something like advisory and something like wilderness, uh, trips or adventures of some sort, um, any program that I'd be willing to run I think I would be willing to require that of participants and say if you're not willing to to go on this kind of adventure or you're not willing to to discuss uh, what's going on and and be vulnerable on a regular basis then then this is not the program for you um yeah. and and that's as much about what I consider my strengths as uh, you know someone who works with young people as as any sort of universal value judgment
1: yeah makes perfect sense
0: yeah Thank okay. You. So you required yeah. math in a like more conventional sense and, yep. and outside of that, what, what did millennium students have to do and and what were they given a large amount of leeway to, to choose?
1: Yeah. So they had to do what you just said, advisory and wilderness experience. And then we decided that we would construct the outline of our projects uh, and We call projects quests at Millennium School, and so we would select the questions. Uh, The questions were often generated by students, so the the origin of them could come from many places, Mm -hmm. Um, but that the adults would select which ones, um, and that was also part of that compromise that we needed some time to prepare some of the academic structure around them. Um, But the way the students went about answering the questions would be on them as much as possible. Mm. So to give you one example, you know, we started the school um, the year that Trump was elected and a student uh, asked the question. I'm going to paraphrase it and said, you know, is this ultimately about slavery? Like, is this the long, you know, tale of slavery? Is that why this happens? And so we made that our next quest question, said we can't can't imagine a better one than that. Um, So the the quest question was, has America dealt with slavery? And I think, you know, obviously the first blush answer is clearly no, um, but to really dig into that, like, what is the legacy of this institution that existed and how does that shape our politics and how does that show up in your life and how do you want to look at this? That was really up to students. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, of course, lots of coaching and different people that they got to meet um, because that's such a broad question can be hard to even know where to begin, but they dove into it and they spent six weeks working on that question. And the final day, I'll never forget, there was a, a panel of people who had expertise about this in some way, you know, a civil rights attorney, uh, someone working in governments, um, an elderly man who could, had lived through the Jim Crow era in the U.S. South and could speak about it. And the students presented what they had come to feel, you know, about the lasting legacy of slavery in our culture and what we could do about it you know should there be reparations all of these really really tricky questions mm-hmm. and these were you know probably average age 12 year olds mm-hmm. and they rocked it i mean there wasn't a dry eye in the house the way that they could reference such intense topics and speak intelligently about what they might do as policy
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was one of those moments where i realized we just massively underestimate kids
0: <laughs> and when I imagine the the classic rebuttal that a middle schooler has to an educator, which is why is this important or why does this matter? Like it's harder to have that rebuttal when that's the quest or that's the project that they're working on. You're like, oh, you you, you think this may not matter? You think this this may not be a relevant topic? You know, <laughs> yeah, own, that's own the on, the, on the kid to, to <laughs> say this is not relevant. Um, and and something that you described in the book, the the three kind of core parts of Quest teaching or, or the, the version of project-based learning that you used at Millennium was to organize around a question, number one, to uh, what you call ride the developmental river, which I, I believe means pay attention to the specific developmental needs of middle schoolers, number two, and finally to uh, to present the findings and, and for the, the students to know from the beginning that they will be offering their findings to what you call an authentic audience. And, and that is something, and you just briefly mentioned it there as, as you know, at the end of the six weeks, they presented to this kind of multi-age, multidisciplinary group of people. But I find that to be so, so crucial because there's nothing, I, I can think of a few things more disheartening than to pour all your effort into a school project or homework or a test and what happens to it at the end of the day it it is shown to no one it is it goes into a a, a trash basket either metaphorical or literal uh your teacher who has her attention split among 35 other people you know writes a few comments on it maybe you have a parent who cares enough to take a look but otherwise it's gone it's dead it doesn't matter and and of course if it doesn't matter and that happens to you over and over again you're going to think that school doesn't matter. You're going to think that learning and education doesn't matter. So exactly. Yeah. Tell me more about the authentic audience, like how, how you got over this, like nothing, none of the work I do matters hump that middle schoolers often throw up there.
1: Yeah. I mean, and the bigger picture, exactly as you said, is, you know, for most of human history, middle school is when you stepped into adulthood and you started having to do things for real with real value and real consequence. And that's how people feel valuable. You do things of value for someone else and you feel like a valuable person. So, you know, fast forward to today, and middle schoolers have to ask for permission to go to the bathroom and they write papers that are forgettable because that's, you know, how it's been set up. And of course, they're going to struggle with their sense of value as a result and their motivation. So, the other piece too is, you know, for educators, it puts us in a really awkward position that if we are the ones who are coaching students and helping to kind of draw out from them these ideas that they want to develop, and then all of a sudden one day we change roles and say, I'm also judging you, and I'm the only one who's going to judge you, you know, I think students see through that, see that we're highly subjective, you know, they can play to our soft spots, um, and it doesn't feel as real or as worth working hard for. So, For all those reasons, that idea of the authentic audience, I think it's probably the single best way to make project-based learning work. Mm. That If the kids know and the teachers know, ultimately, this is going to an objective person who I don't even know, but has some life experience or some expertise or credential that makes them clearly an expert in this. Um, And then the ideal is students surprise themselves in some way. They're terrified going in, they feel unworthy, major imposter syndrome, and they go in front of a panel of who knows what it might be, depending on the topic, and they get serious responses from the adults. Like, that was really interesting, or I was confused about that point, could you go deeper into it? They see that they're taken seriously, and then they walk out a little bit taller. That's what adolescents need, to feel like they're actually tested by the real world, not Mm -hmm. this game of school.
0: Mm -hmm. And a question we'll return to soon is, uh, what can a middle school offer that uh, a a home education uh, path cannot offer? And I feel like that this is something like an audience, a significantly sized audience of adults who are not parents or family friends, uh, who can offer this, this (laughs) authentic audience and like concrete uh no bullshit like evaluation and feedback of, of student work. That's that's a potential answer to that. But let's circle back to that um, yeah. a little bit later. Okay, so there at Millennium School there were quests, which were essentially big projects. I, I heard six weeks as as a time span for the, yeah. the the quest. Um you mentioned earlier giving middle schoolers the time to just like hang out and connect with each other and and learn how the social life works. Like what did that look like at Millennium? You
1: know, really simply it just means not stuffing every second of their day mm. <laughs> with activities mm-hmm. which sounds so easy but can be so hard to do that you know we had breaks in the morning to hang out and socialize you know we had uh have 45 minutes for lunch instead of you know i think the typical is 20 to 25 minutes in most that's middle nuts. schools it's that's, nuts i mean that's nuts yeah there's all kinds of research that shows kids don't even eat food, let alone, you know, have meaningful time to socialize or unwind um, during that time with all kinds of consequences. Um, You know, they had time, a lot of collaborative time during their projects as well, where you're not, you know, following a script or a worksheet, but it's you and three people that maybe you've chosen, maybe you've been randomly matched with, working on a big question, and you've got an hour. And you go into all of the challenges that we adults face of you know, who's in charge here? How do I deal with a different personality? You know, middle schoolers are really primed for that kind of learning because mm-hmm. their social radar is so good. So through all of their day, basically they're highly social.
0: And in those like group work sessions, how much were the students allowed to to flail and, and make mistakes and be inefficient? Uh, and how much did, did staff members step in when they when they saw large amounts of flailing happen, yeah,
1: <laughs> you know we we use the term of uh, fruitful struggle. Um, it, it's and it's it's very hard to define that with any specificity. I, I think if I'm being really honest, it's about the personality of the teacher in the room. That some have more tolerance for it and would allow more flailing. You know, presuming it didn't seem like anyone was really being harmed. Uh, others struggle to let the flailing happen and really want to jump in and offer more structure. And ultimately, as a school leader, I felt like I can't mandate or control this. And actually, it's kind of nice for students to experience different adults Mm -hmm. and their styles. um, Mm -hmm. And that's part of their mix overall. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And on that topic, just talk about you, you. Spend a lot of time in the book discussing this about how relationships with parents and also educators shift and, and need to shift uh, in the middle school years, and uh, maybe you can especially dwell on on how parent-child relationships shift because this seems like an eternal point of struggle for pretty much every, yes. every parent <laughs> in human history.
1: Yeah, truly. I, I think again, like the level of change is hard to anticipate. So you get thrown into it much like, you know, when you're a parent of a newborn and you can read every book about it, but it's still going to be a shock. Uh, You know, I think the the metaphor, simplest metaphor I can use, and this is used in the book, too, which is if you imagine that you were going on some type of big wilderness expedition where, you know, multiple days away from society, you know, possible dangers and you could just select one person to go with you. really take a moment and think what kind of guide would i want and i've now had the chance to ask many people this question in different audiences and it's interesting what comes up you know people say you know they want someone who clearly knows the territory Um, they want someone who's going to give them good cautionary notes you know if they're about to do something terribly dangerous Uh, no one so far has said they want to be lectured by the guide all day Uh, people generally don't want Someone whose personality is going to be grating uh, or a guide who's constantly questioning them or trying to force them where to go. Um, in other words, they want someone who has authority from their experience, but is not trying to hold it over them, still letting them have their experience. So, very long story short, I think that's the metaphor for parenting, a middle schooler, that you have authority from your experience. Uh, you know this terrain better. You've been through ups and downs. Um, But if you are holding that over them and and lecturing them or warning them about things that don't really matter right now, um, or thinking that you always know the best path, then that's not a great guide. You're you're not going to want that kind of person through the wilderness, and you as the middle schooler are going to look for other sources. So I think the more we can see ourselves that way as a companion versus a boss, uh, the better journey we're going to have. Uh, not to say it's going to be an easy one, but that can really lower the conflict.
0: How old are your kids, Chris?
1: Yeah, good. So my oldest one is uh, heading into fourth grade. So she is, I have two younger ones, two and four years old. So I am right on the cusp. Just a few of
0: more years. Having to
1: take my own medicine.
0: Rubber hits and, uh, the no road.
1: Du- yeah, no doubt the next edition of the book will be different yeah. once I've experienced it Preface. That way
0: everything i wrote before was wrong i'd like to apologize to everyone who invested in this book
1: (laughs) yeah it is it's funny I, i joke about this with my wife all the time it's like i i'm actually often frazzled by younger kids but for whatever reason the way that middle schoolers challenge at least that i've experienced so far in my educator roles uh I just, I enjoy the way that they're kind of emerging into the world. So I hope that that's the case with my own children, but I expect to be challenged (laughs) by it
0: deeply. It sounds like you're (laughs) Um, well-prepared. A chapter that I was especially in love with and biased towards in the the book was chapter 14, Beyond School. And you you spent a lot of time discussing how things worked in the Millennium School and how things have worked in other cool middle schools that you visited. And uh, just to read the, from the very beginning of this chapter, you say, if you've read this far, you know that middle schools can be magical. It's where young people can feel safe and connected, engaged in deep projects with real world impact. But even the best middle schools can't do everything. There will always be some magic beyond their reach. And then you go on to to illustrate this. and um, and, and I love that because even the coolest, the most innovative, hip, new, school it's such hubris to imagine that everything a a 13 year old needs can be provided by this one institution and that whatever their private you know family life is and and so you you give you honor this this whole world of things that happens in the the third space the, the third spaces which are not home and not school and so, tell me a, a bit about what you describe uh, in that chapter, and just what what you are most enthusiastic about uh, in this third space.
1: Yeah, this one is close to my heart too. Uh, so, in my last year at Millennium School, I started this project called the Essential Experiences Project, and it just consisted of basically one thing, which was asking everyone I could find of any age, uh, as long as they were, you know, later middle school through adult. You know, when you think about middle school. What was the experience that had the most positive lasting impact on you? And maybe that even still shapes you today, many years or decades later. And I asked enough people that I started to compile compile literally hundreds of answers and then to sift them and try to figure out like what are the patterns, what answers keep coming up. And it led to this initial list of about 50 experiences uh, that we're calling the kind of essential experiences, but It's not intended to be the end of that list it's we hope it'll always grow Uh, and it's everything from you know somebody gave me a diary and i started writing in it and p.s i'm 40 and i still write in it or you know the first time that i actually made a meal for my family and i suddenly realized that i could do that um all the way to you know the first time i went to a protest and realized i could do that and someone actually took my voice seriously uh, or starting a business um, you know the list goes on and on and on so that that's one beginning answer to the beyond school things and what i wonder when i look at this list is you know what if this was our curriculum and we said you know forget the standardized tests and all the other stuff and uh, you know being extreme here just to be playful what if we said it's choosing your path through these essential experiences and others you might dream of and doing them full-heartedly with other people, with that authentic audience. You know, that to me, at, at the heart of it, seems more like what middle school should be.
0: Hmm. And this is how we originally connected, if I remember correctly. I, right. I think I found your 50 Essential Experiences uh, on the Argonaut blog, and I shared it on my newsletter and on Facebook, and, and people loved it. And I wrote you, and, and I said, well done. And then we started talking. And, That's right. And I'm just so on board with what you just said. Uh, which is, this could be the the curriculum. It's like, here's a list of 50 things that a million people said are the most meaningful ways to spend your middle school years. You know, see how many of these you can accomplish within this time frame and we will support you and you can do it solo. You can team up with other kids. Uh, yeah, if you had to have a curriculum, that's a pretty damn good list. And so I recommend, you know, it, the list is in the book, but also you can just go Google 50 essential experiences, Chris Baum, and it'll be right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
1: if we had to err on one side if it was, you know, just to be extreme, either do those experiences or we're going to sit you down for 9 hours a day of memorizing things in order <laughs> to get into the right school yeah. so that you don't fail. Clearly, the essential yeah. experiences would be the better path.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of challenging and and boundary pushing, you know, difficult, vulnerable things on this list and and so yeah, they're not easy, but like you said if it's between that and like being force fed content for seven hours a day uh, for five days a week, then yeah, come on. We know which one. That's it. Yeah,
1: exactly. And this just made me realize, I don't know if I've asked you the question behind all this. So if you look back on your middle school years, what do you think is the most positive lasting experience? It
0: it all happened after school. It it Mm -hmm. was, it was friendships. It was bonding over like trading card games, like Magic the Gathering was a huge element of my yes. life. It, it was learning how the social world of skateboarding worked and becoming very enamored with almost the art of skateboarding, like how people turn concrete jungles into their their personal playgrounds through skateboarding. I always felt extremely compelling. Um, and I was learning a lot by playing like really good video games and computer games, like a lot of strategy stuff, RPG stuff, a lot of really social games, and so that was how I was learning to like embrace my competitive side and to like use humor and uh, you know l- learning these rules of of the social world. Uh, but like stuff that actually happened in school or was facilitated by school, uh, I I am I am struggling struggling to answer that question in, in any reasonable timeframe, uh, which is sad. And, uh, yeah, if I was told, go do some essential experiences, man, that would have blown my mind. Uh, you and me both. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I you guess also, that's why we're here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, in the beyond school chapter, you also discuss, uh, apprenticeships, which we already know is a topic close to your heart, hi- your heart, uh, facilitated peer groups, which that's essentially advisory, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then rites of passage. This has come up a number of times uh, in discussions on this podcast. How do you conceive of of rites of passage, and and how did you try to make them work in Millennium?
1: Yeah. So I would just conceive of it as a time when a community honors change and recognizes change. And you know what I say in the book is that they they will always happen because it's such a fundamental part of human existence. We're trying to make a story, make meaning out of how we're changing, but it's our choice, whether they happen in intentional ways or kind of accidental ways. And I would say in our culture, we've lost a lot of the intentional ones. You know, I think some of the, the big ones I think of remaining are, you know, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah in the Jewish faith or getting married. Um, but we in their place of all the perhaps having more intentional ones in the past. Now we have accidental ones, like you got your driver's license, you know, there isn't really any community around this. There's not really an honoring, but now you can do this thing that opens up lots of doors Um, or you can drink. And now you can do this thing that may or may not be good for you. So my point with all that is uh, we have a chance to create intentional rites of passage, where we gather people, we recognize that someone has changed, maybe we challenge them to show us what they can do, and then we send them on their way, you know, much in the way that in an ideal form, you know, a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah might offer, where you go through a community experience where you have to show that you can do something, you've learned something, you've become old enough, and just by the end of that event, after a few hours, you feel significantly older, maybe more ready to be, holding freedoms or responsibilities. Mm. Uh, So to give you one example from Millennium, uh, this is one of my favorite uh, Millennium School stories of a a rite of passage that was uh, kind of invented by students. So our founding class, we went on a week-long wilderness trip to close out their middle school journey. And these were the students who, at least as much as us, had designed the school. And we created this whole elaborate rite of passage in which they would hike to this secluded place up a mountain, each find their own personal spot, and then their advisor would kind of magically appear and give them a letter from their parents, which they didn't know was coming, that basically said all of the things that their parents saw in them, all that they appreciated, which sometimes can be hard to get across when you're you know, just talking, but in this space, we thought they might really be able to receive. And we had this beautiful ceremony that we thought was the rite of passage. They received these and then we gathered as a circle and they talked about kind of what they picked up from their parents and what they were noticing. And then we started hiking down the mountain and we realized that um, the path we had planned to take was kind of washed out um, as it was June and the snow was melting. And there was like a 12 foot wide, incredibly cold, mountain stream that was rushing across where we needed to go and we kind of got to the edge of this and we were you know hemming and hawing trying to figure out what to do and then a student an eighth grader said you know this this could be our rite of passage what if what if you said we have to cross this stream and when we get to the other side we are done with eighth grade and this would be the beginning of our high school time and you know they were going to graduate the next day uh, for in a formal ceremony in an auditorium, but you know we adults were all like, "Yeah, that sounds amazing." And so you know everybody took their boots off and strung them over their shoulders, and one teacher was kind of volunteered to be in the middle of the stream just in case help was needed in any way. And one at a time, the students all forded this stream, and each time someone got to the other edge, everyone just went crazy, screaming and clapping and cheering. Um, and it was an unforgettable moment. You know, they realized you don't need a lot, you don't need an auditorium, um, but we kind of agreed as a group of maybe about 40 people, like we're gonna make this river crossing kind of a sacred thing. and we know when you're on the other side, uh, you're done with middle school mm-hmm. and you're on to the next adventure. So
0: how many students did you lose that day?
1: Only a few were swept downstream. Oh, (laughs) man, 90% success rate? Yeah, at least. Amazing. Exactly. Um,
0: You know, uh, my my critique of of modern attempts to recreate rite of passages, I'm realizing it is fairly uh, maybe academic and unfair because the original rite of passage would be recognized by like literally the entire society, which might just be a group of a hundred people that, that right. you were, you were part of. And so it really was like, you're a ki- you were a kid yesterday. Now you're an adult because you survived this heroin experience. And, right. and so it's, it's impossible to recreate that. And maybe the closest thing we have is, yeah, high school graduation, college graduation. Um, things that that are overwhelmingly recognized and appreciated, uh, for better or worse, within our society. But I have experienced and witnessed powerful um, rite-of-passage type experiences in these smaller communities, on, more on the scale of, of what you just said, like 40, 50 people, um, at Deer Crossing Camp, the, the wilderness camp where I worked for number of years, and I went there as a, as a kid, there was a, a teen leadership program, the LIT program, leader in training. And after those four weeks, uh, there would be a, a culminating three-day, two-night, overnight trip in the Sierras with essentially just the clothes on your back, very mm. intense, grueling. Uh, you had to learn a lot. You had to really pay attention. And uh, and once you finished that, then you were considered an actual LIT. You, you, you had... Mm finished the program and you were only recognized for this within this little deer crossing camp community which is maybe 50 60 people tops and and then hopefully your parents at home kind of understand what she went through but but nonetheless it was it was powerful and impacting and that's one of my primary models for how like education or working with young people could be could be done differently and and better and that's one of the reasons I never went into traditional education in the first place because I witnessed things like that. And something similar, um, not a wilderness trip, but at not back to school camp, there is a, a sort of graduation process also. And so these, uh, for all of the, the ways that we can never do a real rite of passage nowadays, these smaller organizations with caring adults um, can offer a pretty good proxy for that.
1: I think you're right. We may not be wanting to send them into the jungle for a year to see if they survive. But we can kind of distill out that, you know, it's got to be something that feels really personal. There've got to be people around you that are making it a social experience where they're validating it. And it has to have something that feels hard, you know, even if it's just walking in a super cold (laughs) mountain stream for a Mm -hmm. minute, something that's just a little bit of an edge of challenge or slight fear um, Mm -hmm. that helps you realize you've pushed through something. Yeah. You know, that's it. That can happen in lots of different, different settings.
0: Yeah. Yes. Um, So when I read your book, Chris, I got the feeling that it's definitely directed at more mainstream families, the families that are still thinking fairly inside the box uh, when it comes to middle school. And your book exists to push them in kind of the the first big push in the direction of like alternative and experiential and and self-directed education. Um, So to anyone listening to this interview who feels like they're already out there, in the land of like alternative, self-directed, experiential, um, uh, just tell everyone like what what you feel most enamored by in the world of of alternative education. Like what inspires you the most, and maybe how some of that leaked into the book, and maybe what people could expect to find if they already feel um, familiar with with more alternative ideas. Yeah.
1: I mean, a huge inspiration from the alternative school world. As I mentioned, that's kind of how I got started in education. And I think the key is to make sure as a parent, if we're speaking about parents, that you actually use that freedom. Because I also see the trap where you know you can be a homeschooler who just recreates school at home. That's I don't think that's the ideal. So for me, it's understanding what's happening developmentally and working as much as you can with that force. You know, in the book I talk about, development is kind of like a river and you can you cannot stop it. <laughs> you can't make things manageable by wading into the river and trying to tell it to stop. Um, you have to learn to ride it. And so if you're a homeschool or an unschool or alternative school uh, parent, you know, you have this crazy freedom where you can either curate experiences or you can invite your child to the extent they're ready to create, find experiences And that's what I was speaking about before, kind of the role of being a guide, where you're not making the mistake of thinking, I can convey all information to you, or I can be everything that you need. Uh, You're making sure that they have a really varied social world. Uh, You're making sure they have intensive experiences where they get to figure out something about who they are. Um, You're giving them as much control over that as you can, which is going to be much more than if you're in a traditional school. So that would be my hope for people in that community reading this book. And and there are so many parts of that community that inspire me from, you know, the Sudbury Valley schools to, I spent a lot of time in Israel looking at the democratic school movement there, which I found incredibly inspiring. Uh, The growth of homeschooling and unschooling or traveling schools, there's so many different varieties of this. Um, I just hope to see that grow more and more. Uh, It feels like right now that there isn't You know, there's not meaningful choice for most people, unfortunately, Um, and as vibrant as the homeschool and unschool community is, it's still so small. I would love to see both it grow and more choices along the whole spectrum Mm -hmm. pop up.
0: I have this idea that something that families, parents who are already out in the alternative world can do with your book is they can gift it to their friends who have kids who will soon be in the middle school years and are still fairly conventionally minded and you can say here here's all the cool stuff that can happen in middle school instead of it just being drudgery and you know the parents will will read that book and they'll say oh wow i love all these ideas you know we don't have something that feels like similar to a millennium school next to us And, and then you know, the, the parents who originally gifted the book can say, you know, you can join us over here in, in unschooling land, you know, come, come <laughs> join join the party, join the club over here. It could go in that direction. Um, I love that. I hope it does. <laughs> um. Right, so I want to circle back to the question. I want you to defend the value of, of a school, like, like a large community mm-hmm. with some structure like Millennium School. And what is it that homeschoolers or or maybe people who go to like small homeschool co-ops uh, m- might be missing out on, like the, the students, the young people, what what might they be missing out on that you think can only be uniquely offered by a larger community, a larger institution, uh, a larger group of, of non-parental adults and, and perhaps structure and requirements? Mm. You know, uh... <laughs>
1: Forgive me for this answer in advance, but I feel like that's kind of like saying I want you to defend, you know, why is Italian food better than Japanese food or something like that? I think the answer is that an ideal world would involve tremendous variety uh, and with students able to experience different things and then have increasing degrees of choice. So there are just some students who prefer more structured environments, um, there are some who prefer it at one year and not the next. Uh, I just think the answer is variety, and that's profoundly missing in our school system. Uh, But to try to answer a little more directly what I think you're getting (laughs) at, um, not totally to dodge the question, I think the first thing that comes to mind, the key mistake, I think, to avoid if you're going the alternative route is not to become isolated. And I know a lot of homeschooling families, and they actually seem like the opposite of isolated usually, or they found people formal co-ops or otherwise, because I think they've been they've been pushed to do that. Um, and I, I hear of others that have become isolated. So I think the key is to know middle school first and foremost is about the social world. You're as a middle schooler, you're basically recreating every single part of yourself in a social context with awareness that it's being judged and that you're being included and excluded. Uh, that it has social impact. So they have to be social and ideally in a pretty diverse group. So if everyone is a homeschooler from the same town, I, I'm not sure if that's enough diversity. Uh, so meaningful, intense social experiences, you know, with spaces like advisory so you can process what's happening, I think that's essential. And good homeschoolers, unschoolers already do that. Uh, maybe some still feel isolated and, and could head in that direction
0: yeah good answers um all right we are about to to wrap up but uh, one other thing that came up in your book uh, y- you gave specific concrete advice for a lot of what i would consider hot button concerns uh, among parents which include uh, phones uh, um, identity issues like gender identity questions social media screen time and uh, instead of just having you like read out your, your list of policy prescriptions here, like what what spirit lies beneath um, the, the advice that you give to parents regarding these these like quickly developing and, and often quite sensitive uh, topics? Like does it all come back to developmental needs for you? Basically, yeah, you got it. I
1: think it's, you know, we have to translate what they're saying. So like with the phone example, if they're saying like, everybody has a phone, you know, we have to translate that into what's really happening developmentally is they're saying, you know, I'm afraid I'll be left out. I think for most cases, I don't know if this is going to cost me my belonging. And when you hear it that way, you can realize like, wow, that this is really serious. Uh, It doesn't mean that you need to get them a phone, but that's what they feel is at stake. And belonging is everything for a middle schooler. That's their foundation. So then, once you have that developmental understanding of what's really going on, then you position yourself alongside them to say, okay, I get that this is about belonging, and I get that that's more important than anything else. So maybe I'm ready to give you a phone with certain conditions, or maybe I'm not yet. But if I'm not yet, let's talk about how we create that feeling of belonging. Where are the spaces where you can feel that? Uh, to me, that's the essential move here, um, uh, translate, see the developmental need at play, position yourself alongside your child so that you're helping them meet that need in a way that you're also comfortable with. And PS, it's probably going to need to push you a little bit. Uh, if you're always totally comfortable with where they are, you're probably holding them back as an adult Ooh,
0: because we're, we're always lagging, <laughs> you know,
1: uh, we just were lagging. We, we remember them when they were tiny. We remember when we wouldn't let them cross the street without holding our hands. And it's just hard to believe how quickly they change for all of us. So you've got to recognize that your comfort zone is not where they should be.
0: Chris, if people want to follow your work and other writing that you're publishing, uh, where can they go? What's the best place for all things Chris Baum?
1: Thanks, Blake. Yeah, just my website, uh, Chris Balm uh, ecom That would be the place.
0: And because it sounds like you're not going to self-promote to the degree that I was hoping you would, you have <laughs> you have an amazing newsletter, which uh, I've I've noticed some stuff which is in the book is is coming out in in similar forms, and there's also brand new content, and it's and it's free, and it's and it's wonderful, and, and I assume just go to your website to sign up for that newsletter.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, self-promotion is not necessarily my strength. Uh, the newsletter is called Growing Wiser and yes, you can get it through my website.
0: Chris, thanks so much for this discussion. And I, I now feel like I want to teleport back to my middle school years and have like a team of awesome adults on my side to, to do them all over again. So uh, thank you for that, I guess.
1: that's pretty high praise. Like if anyone would be willing to teleport back to middle school after a discussion, then I'm going to pat myself on the back for that one. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.